Hi everyone and welcome back to the Parma podcast. Uh, I'm James Prescott, your host. Welcome back to the show. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, I'm really excited today. Got a, uh, a good friend of mine, a returning guest. I, I, I think I've lost count now how many times he's been on the show. Um, but um, yeah, welcome back, Brandon Robertson. Thanks so much for having me back. It's always good to be with you and have conversations around faith and life and all the things that matter, James. Yes, yes, it's uh, it is. We, we we talked earlier this year about um, the book you had out earlier this year. Um, yeah. Now you have another book out. Um, you're becoming quite prolific. How many books is this now you've you've written? Yeah, this is book number seven, I think. Right. Yeah, but. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's. I've always said writing is kind of like my therapy. Um, I, I always, I really resonate with a quote from Joan Didion who says, uh, "I don't write what I think. I write to know what I think." And so, so much of me writing books or writing anything is me trying to work out what I actually think about things and what I actually believe. And um, whether it's foolish or not, I tend to publish all of my writing, whatever, uh, good or bad, wherever I'm at in the process of thinking through something. Um, and over my career so far, it feels like, yeah, just getting the opportunity to put words out there and let other people see where I'm at at any particular point along the journey is helpful for me, and I hope helpful for other people. Yeah, that's a great. I love that that quote that writing you write to figure out what you what you think. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's very true for me. I've um, when I've been when I've been writing that I often discover what I actually think about something. Or even what I know about something, sometimes by writing about it, <laughs> like some profound truth that I've discovered that I didn't realize I discovered, and then like, oh yeah, you know, <laughs> it just comes out when you when you're writing. So absolutely resonate with that. Um, totally. And this book is called Dry Bones and Holy Wars: um, A Call for Social and Spiritual Renewal, which is, I I think that's a great title. Um, and yeah, so tell us about how this book came about. Yeah, this book was kind of, uh, there's been two books out of the seven books that I've put out so far that were not my idea. And this is one of the books that was not one of my ideas. Um, I had come out with a book, as you mentioned earlier this year, about privilege, uh, writing for primarily white progressive communities, thinking about how to understand privilege and leverage privilege for the good of others. And in the midst of writing that book, um, I had transitioned out of pastoring a church. Uh, we were in the midst of COVID and in the midst of the Trump era still. And uh, Orbis Press, which is kind of a, um, a well-known uh, press that has published liberation theologians and queer theologians for um, almost 100 years now, they reached out and said, hey, we're looking in this moment for folks who have been speaking and writing in the Trump era prophetically. Um, And if you have a bunch of ideas and sermons and writings that you've been um, creating during the midst of this six years of kind of terror that we all live through, would you consider compiling that together and kind of creating a, a devotional type book that people could read and reflect on and figure out what role faith has in a moment where democracy seems to be collapsing and the threats to um, people of color and LGBT people and women seem to be increasing. And so with the editor from Orbis, I went on a journey of uh, 
going through sermons and writings over the past eight years, um, mostly from my time um, pastoring in San Diego from 2017 to 2020, and pulled out a bunch of uh, writings that we then refined and edited and added to to turn into what I hope um, is a series of biblical reflections that can help remind people in this moment that the Christian faith actually does have something to offer and something to say and a way to critique the far-right threats that we're facing. Um, and there's also a reason, even when it feels so hopeless, to have a little bit of hope in this moment. Um, and I think drawing on the Bible and our tradition um, is one way to recover some of that hope that has been so thoroughly buried underneath of all of our other anxieties and concerns in this moment. So that's a little bit about how the book came to be. And yeah, so what, so what do you cover in the book? Um, it seems quite a broad, a broad title, but also quite an inspiring one. So uh, yeah, yeah, what kind of things do you explore? Totally. Well, I mean, it's meant to explore pretty much every major modern crisis. And so we have everything from privilege and racism and uh, discrimination to climate change and um, what it looks like to build bridges and not um, lean into polarization. So again, I mean, the real story behind the book is every Sunday as I was pastoring my church in San Diego, I would have to go into my office on Monday morning and open up the Bible and try to find something that was relevant to what my congregation and our country was experiencing at that moment, which again was right when Trump had become president. So there was so much fear and there's so much anxiety and that everybody in my congregation was looking for some sort of direction and some reason to be hopeful. And what I found was, to my surprise, by going back to the Bible and reading it uh, to prepare for my sermons, I found that so many of these ancient stories and myths had so much to say so much relevancy, and actually sounded a lot like what we were going through in our modern era. And so one of the stories that uh, I talk about in the book is from the Hebrew Bible. It's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are thrown oh, no. into a fiery furnace because they refuse to bow down to a tyrannical king. And that story was so profoundly relevant uh, as our country in the United States looked at Donald Trump, who was using religion and um, using power and privilege to try to force people to quote unquote bow down to his agenda. Um, and anyways, those kind of parallels just jumped out at me as I would study the scriptures. And I really fell in love with the Bible again um, during those years. Um, and I, I truly believe that for whatever the Bible is, whether you believe it's divine or you believe it's a human book, there is something mysterious and profound about how thoroughly human it is and how it can pierce through any era that you're in and can pierce through whatever the social reality is with convicting wisdom and um, can, when it's being used well, point us in the direction towards progress and the direction towards justice. And so that's really what this book is. It's uh, like I, I, 15 to 20 chapters. I don't for, uh, remember, but uh, of, going to the scripture and asking, here's a modern crisis. Maybe it's climate change. Maybe it's racism. What does the Bible have to say? And then I spend uh, a couple thousand words extrapolating out what those ancient texts say and how they might be applied to our modern moment. Mm, that is powerful. And there is a sense of like, the, the, 
you know, that what's true about humanity stays true about humanity, in a sense, like human nature. Um, that there are some, there are always going to be human beings who um, lust after power and who want to cause harm to other people to do that. Um, and, you know, or they're all, at least there always have been. Um, I'm not saying there always will be, but there always have been. And so, yeah, I mean, there's plenty of examples in the Bible which are very, very relevant. Um, I mean, like the whole idea of the Roman Empire, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, is like it's very, very. You could you could compare it to capitalism, really, like, or, or certainly evangelical America. Um, there's there's a lot of metaphors there. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it never fails to um, inspire me that, that you know how how much we can see so much of today in things that were written thousands of years ago. Exactly. And I think you said that so beautifully. I mean, my understanding of the Bible today is that it's a chronicle of the evolution of human consciousness. And it was uh, given through a particular group of people and it happened in a particular time frame. But those patterns do repeat themselves and human behavior does repeat itself. And uh, the Bible itself says there's nothing new under the sun, and there's a profound truthfulness to that, that every generation has to face their own dictators. Every generation has to look in the mirror and confront their own prejudice and bias. Every generation needs to look again at how they're relating to the natural world. And I think our moment is unique in that we might be feeling the stress of all of that in a more acute way than other generations might have. Um, I think the climate disaster is a real threat to us that it wasn't uh in a way that it wasn't 2000 years ago and yet the bible still has things to say about how we relate to the earth um and calls us i think towards a more just and generative relationship um with the earth as one of the incarnations of god that the earth is sacred in and of itself um so yeah uh the bible Drew me, it drew me back into the Bible over those four years of preaching, and so much so that I'm now living in New York City getting a PhD in the Bible. Um, it was not something that I was planning to necessarily go in that direction, but seeing the relevance of this text and the power of this text has made me all the more um, committed to studying it and hopefully utilizing it for good. Mm. Yeah, and it feels like this because it's almost a memoir of your spiritual journey through the Trump years, um, especially because that's the years that a lot of this was written. Um, and how almost like you got kind of lived experience because you were in one sense on the front line as a pastor, you know, encountering people who were, you know, living with the consequences of what Donald Trump did. Um, and just, you know, the, the increase of white supremacy and, um, and that whole movement um, and its kind of power and authority. Um, and, and of course, you know, being, being LGBTQ yourself, you, you, of course, of course you, you yourself probably were, well, you were, I suspect you were that on the end of a lot of, you know, harm and abuse and, and prejudice that came further to the surface in that period. So um, I'm sure this book is absolutely fascinating in terms of, your own journey. I mean, is there a sense of that as, as you looked through um, the book itself and I'm sure you've read it back. 
do you see kind of a, a personal journey in there as well? Totally. I mean, again, I kind of started this book uh, in a season of life where I was pretty cynical. Um, and I was kind of in the midst of deconstruction. And um, it seems probably odd to some people, but uh, a lot of us younger pastors who began ministry around that season, um, and there were quite a few of us, um, started off ministry in a very cynical and kind of dark place. Because again, American Christianity, as obvious as it seems now, to a lot of us, I mean, the the Trump moment and the way that evangelicals, white evangelicals in particular, sold themselves out to the agenda of somebody so immoral, um, that was a that sped up the deconstruction process for a lot of us and caused us a lot of cynicism, pain, and anger. And so when I began pastoring in 2017, I wasn't in the most spiritually grounded place, and I wasn't in the most. Uh, I didn't have a great relationship with the Bible or um, even a real good relationship with religion in general and what its usefulness might be. But over those years, and I, I said this. Um, a few weeks ago at the book launch event, it kind of occurred to me as I was reading this book out loud that the Trump years actually made me a Christian again. The Trump years made me go back to my faith, made me confront Jesus, made me confront the Bible. And I found that they, the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of our scripture actually had relevance. And so that led me on a new journey of reconstruction, of finding new ways to talk about and understand my own faith and then express that to my congregation in ways that hopefully could inspire them. And so uh, you're right to say that it's a, a chronicle of my journey over those four years. Um, even though there's not a lot of personal story or antidotes like that in the book, um, you can definitely see a trajectory from um, some of the chapters being very skeptical and critical of the biblical text. And then some of them leaning fully into the, the power and the mystery and the beauty of the biblical texts. Um, and all of that was a response to the crisis that we were living in and in many ways continue to live in, uh, in the Western world. Yeah. That's so fascinating. That's so fascinating. And you're right in that to say that there was a whole wave of deconstruction, um, which happened as a result of Trump's election. Uh, and I mean, like now, the, the deconstruction community is bigger than it ever has been. Um, there are so many people who are going through that process now. Um, um, and a lot of them started in the last two, three years, you know, and that was um, and partly because of, of Trump. Some of them even voted for Trump, you know, and, um, and you know, regretted it afterwards, obviously. And, um, yeah. but that whole thing made them think about their faith and what they were part of. And yeah, it, it, it's, it's really fascinating because I, I spoke to, um, the guy that created Spiral Dynamics. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Spiral Dynamics, but it's, it's I've talked about it a bit on this podcast. Um, and I spoke to him in the spring of 2016. Um, and he told me that if Donald Trump won that election, that there would be a huge shift in consciousness, in human consciousness, um, which he hadn't seen for a long time. It would be it would tear it would tear apart the fabric of how things were, and it would it would shift things forward. Um, and he was right. 
Um, um, everything I've seen since then has been, has been true. There's been, a, you know, with the, the movement of deconstruction, people moving away from um, old beliefs, you know, the, more division because Trump divided America. That's how he won. Um, uh, it's just, it is, it is fascinating now that there's so many more people on this journey um, and on a spiritual journey, and, and people are going to different places. Some people are discovering a new form of Christianity. Some people are discovering a new form of spirituality, which is not grounded in any kind of particular religion. Some people are leaving religion altogether. Some people, you know, it's just it, deconstruction goes differently for for everybody. Uh, and all of the all of those responses are valid, um, and all those responses belong. And you know, and your obviously your response was actually to rediscover your faith, which is incredible. Um, and really inspiring. So, yeah, it really is fascinating the you know the impact that 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 moment had. Absolutely, and I think you're right. I think it bears repeating that uh, the deconstruction journey ends in different places. And mine, I mean, in some sense, it made me more of a biblical person. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, I identify as an agnostic, which I didn't identify as four years ago. And so, I feel like the we're still living in a moment of deconstruction. The deconstruction for a lot of us feels like it has happened, but uh, there's still a lot more to be deconstructed. And I'm not even mm. talking about our faith, uh, just the ways we think about our society and who we are and our cultures. Um, so I think um, this book marked a period of my life that opened me up to what now feels like a rhythm that I continually live in, which is deconstructing and reconstructing and deconstructing again and reconstructing again. And that kind of feels like what it, adulthood might uh, look like for me. Um, uh, I think, as you talk about spiral dynamics, there are lots of folks in that community that talk about, quote unquote, a mature faith and a mature or um, a faith that has gone through different stages um, is a faith that can hold complexity. It's a faith that can hold um, the messiness and the, the lack of clear answers. And uh, I definitely feel like, again, the Trump moment sped that up, showed us that all the things that we thought were so clear weren't clear. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of ambiguity now for a lot of us. Yeah, that's right. And and you're right about deconstruction. Uh, to me, I mean, I, to be honest, my deconstruction journey started 22 years ago when my mother died, um, which is a whole different story. But um, but what I have learned is, is that it's not, Look, first, like, um, as kind of Rob Bell kind of alludes to, um, it's just one part of the journey. And and that also, that it's for me, it's not just about what we believe or our faith. It's about unlearning toxic systems and structures and that we live in and that we've been a part of. And, um, and I noticed this a lot on my trip to America because I, uh, I was – when I was actually there, I was staying with people who were safe. I was staying with people that I loved, where my body felt safe, where I could just be me without shame or without fear. Um, and yet when I came out into the system, when I went, you know, went through, when I, when I was traveling, <laughs> so, um, and I had a lot of troubles, a lot of problems traveling um, with, with flights canceled and flights delayed and things like that. And somebody told me during that process, like when I was really going through it a bit, that you know, this is you're you're going you're going through part you're going through a system right now, 
what you're basically doing going through this travel this travel system is is being part of capitalism like capitalism is is you are part of capitalism at this moment and um, that is how you're being treated and that's what you're feeling in your body and it was very true um and yeah i mean deconstruction is yeah it's unlearning how we've been taught how the world works and how society works and how structures work and how even how you know how accountability works how community works um and having to kind of relearn it uh, and like you say it's it's a constant ongoing process of unlearning and relearning and 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 growth and that, that journey doesn't really end um yeah Absolutely. beautifully put thank you <laughs> um yeah so um yeah i mean what i mean how is your how is your approach to the world not just your faith, but to the world and like the system, the capitalist system that we live in. How has your relationship with that changed over the last few years? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, all I know today is that I don't have any firm positions on a lot of these things that I used to have firm positions on. Um, You mentioned capitalism and I think it's so complex, right? The conversations around capitalism and the alternatives. I spent some time a few years ago getting a master's in political science and really trying to think through, like, look at our political systems, look at the way we order society and the economy, and is there another way to do it? Um, And again, I think it's complex. I think what needs to be happening in this moment is that all of us needs to to wake up from our zombie-like slumber where we just participate in systems without critiquing or thinking or considering any alternatives. I think um, capitalism has done some good things in the world. Capitalism has done a lot of evil in the world. I think alternatives like socialism have done a lot of good in the world. And there's been some negative consequences of socialism in the world as well. And so as a person of faith, I tried to at least find some of the core values that I try to live my life by and ask, what do they look like? Uh, when lived out in an economic system or in a political system. And again, I don't think I've seen anybody with really compelling firm answers on how to fix our broken capitalistic system and how to build a more uh, generative socialist leaning system. Um, I think this is a moment for us to be dreaming and scheming and Mm. and actually having fruitful debate, which is something that I think we've, not been able to do in recent years. Um, we turn to demonizing, but I think if we're going to fix our broken system, it's going to begin by us being willing to have conversations and being willing to disagree and being willing to see what new things that perhaps haven't existed yet, uh, we might be able to build and new ways of ordering our society. So it's not really an answer, but it's one just to say a posture of curiosity is how I'm trying to live in all aspects of my life from religion to my politics to even how I relate to our capitalistic system, which again, I'm very grateful is being critiqued post COVID, um, especially with people asking questions about like how we work and work hours and the conditions of uh, workers and how much people are getting paid. These are questions that in the United States 
haven't really ever been asked before. And so to see them finally emerging here, I know places in Europe and the United Kingdom have been quicker to those conversations at different times, um, but they're really important. And I'm really glad that we're, um, I think COVID provided us the opportunity to step back a little bit and see the flaws of our systems with more clarity. I agree. Absolutely. COVID uh, has been bad in so many ways, but like, um, one of the benefits of it, as you say, has been um, to allow everyone to step back and do some personal reflection. Totally. Um, reflection on themselves, reflection on what they're carrying, reflection on what you know, what trauma or grief that they have um, and on who they are, but also on, you know, like you say, our systems and um, the systems that we are part of and that we live in um, and we operate in. And that is, like you say, it's healthy. And I think... I think you're right to say that, that, that we shouldn't be just jumping to one conclusion. We need to have conversations about it. That's how we get healthy growth, I think, is when when we stop um, like coming up with kind of in-out, either-or solutions and actually have healthy grown-up conversation about the kind of world we want to create um, and you know, a more compassionate world, a greener world, a, a more just world, you know, like... Um, I think the thing for me, one of the, the one of the key values that has emerged for me is we need to find a system which humanizes people and which puts people's basic humanity at its core um, and doesn't make and where you don't have to earn your value, you don't have to earn your fundamental basic human rights like healthcare or 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 provision of of, of food and and housing that those don't have to be earned and that your your humanity where your humanity is. Well, humanity is enshrined first rather than you are a, a machine in the system, you know, and you have to earn your worth and the system will exploit your body until you until you die, you know. Um, and there's no, you're right, I think it, it's going to take new ideas. It's going to take new concepts, new reflections, and I think that's that's healthy. Um, that's And I think that applies in the church as well. There's going to be new how do we do spiritual community in a healthy way? How do we do it in a way um, which allows for different perspectives and different spiritual journeys? And and uh, how do we do it in a way which honors everyone's humanity? Um, so it's an interesting time. Totally. It is. But an exciting time. I mean, as for all the anxiety and for all the uh, grief that many people are feeling, I think not to... Uh, glaze over that but it's this kind of moment of uh despair and this moment where things are falling apart that offers us the best opportunity to actually rebuild something better um and so it's a strange moment to be in but one that in some strange way i'm grateful that we get to live through because we get to be a part of those who are rethinking and reforming what the new world looks like absolutely absolutely um I mean, obviously, you've been a pastor, and and um, so you've been you've seen this this firsthand. Like, what what is what is the last what have the last few years taught you about ideas you might have for healthy spiritual community in the future, and what that might look like? Yeah, that's really great. Um, I think I've learned that spiritual community might not need to exist in the way that people think of when they hear spiritual community. Um, I always used to make the joke when I was actually pastoring that 
one of the only reasons I showed up on Sunday mornings was because I got paid to be there, <laughs> meaning that uh, I was starting to question whether there was a usefulness for a Sunday worship gathering kind of experience in my own life. And I was trying to provoke my congregation to start asking the question of, was this useful for us? Is is there a different way that we should be community? Um, I've been hanging out with a rabbi friend here in New York City, where I now live, who runs an incredible community called Lab Shul here in the city. And they are really doing something that I find very compelling. Um, they meet maybe once a month, but as a community of um, Jewish people of faith um, and people from Jewish culture, they have kind of gotten rid of traditional worship gatherings, so to speak. They do high holy day gatherings. So that's a few times a year. They have these massive party-like worship celebrations, ritual celebrations. And then throughout the year, they offer um, dinner parties and they offer um, ritual classes for people to go through like initiation rituals um, for growing up or like bar mitzvah, bab mitzvah uh, type things. Anyways, all that to say, as I look at that community and see, oh, it's more about social gathering, marking some seasons and holidays that are important to the religion and culture of the community, and then helping people walk through those moments of life where we do want rituals to mark those moments, whether it's a birth or a death or a marriage or a coming of age. And the community, it doesn't have any of the frills that a normal quote-unquote, synagogue or church might have. There's uh, no building. There is no big structures like a lot of religious institutions have. It's just kind of a more organic community that's um, centered around ritual, community, and um, life moments. I'm very compelled by that. I think that would be something I would like to be a part of if there was a Christian version of that. Um, And I've also noticed that so many folks haven't gone back to religious institutions after COVID. Um, Many people who were not willing to kind of take the leap and stop going to church, COVID gave them a reason to stop going to church. And a lot of people found that there were other ways to form community outside of the institution of religion. And so lots of folks just have not gone back to their traditional religious communities because they found, whether it's virtual groups Uh, community organizations, uh, social clubs in their city, people have found different ways to get what church was supposed to be offering. And oftentimes those new ways are more authentic, uh, less judgmental. They have a lower bar to entry and are more inclusive. And so all that to say, I don't know what the future of religion is, but I think the future of the religion I want to be a part of is a lot less institutionalized and a lot more creative, expressive, and focused on real relationship, real actual community building, not the kind of artificial religious community that is often formed in traditional churches. Mm. That sounds amazing. That, that um, community that you're describing there that I love that. I love that. And and you're right. I think I, I, I have a lot of friends who use COVID as an excuse to stop, you know, regular church attendance and um and and I, I myself you know i found it i found it difficult to go back to the spiritual community that i was part of um in person before covid um and i still love that community and i still have friends in that community and 
you know, and I still engage, I still I'm in touch with all of them. But it, but my spiritual journey took me to it took me in, in another direction, and now I'm part of a couple of online communities which are really healthy communities. Um, I just spent time with one of them in the states. Um, it was the first time we'd ever met with a little group of us, and like I say, it was really safe and healthy, and um, it was um, I. I I was able to be me. I was able to go home early if I wanted to without feeling any social stigma. All my coping coping mechanisms didn't show up. I was because I felt safe, um, and I still see those guys every week on Zoom. You know, and it's uh, and I know that a lot of other people have found something similar. And I think, like you say, it's another effect of COVID that we've almost been pushed to pushed to make decisions that maybe we were going to make or wanted to make. And also pushed into um, ways of discovering new community, um, new ways of doing community, and that is that's a healthy thing. Totally, absolutely. Again, it just sounds like for all of the pain of this season, it's also a season of new possibilities. And um, I think a lot of us still feel pretty scattered. Uh, I posted this morning on my Instagram a question because I've noticed that my own life um, since COVID has kind of lost a sense of routine and I haven't been able to get a sense of routine back. It feels like everything's a little bit chaotic. And so I asked my Instagram friends, do you have a routine or are you living in chaos these days? And it's most people responded saying, yeah, things are chaotic uh, and there isn't a real rhythm or clarity to most people's lives right now. But again, as scary as that can be, um, and I do think we will need to form rhythms and some structure uh, in our lives and in our world in the coming days. Um, it's out of kind of the primordial uh, messiness that new life can emerge, that new beginnings can emerge, that new ways of being can emerge. And so um, I'm hopeful. And that's that's the vision I'm trying to point to in, in the book is to say, yes, things are really messed up. Yes, our world is falling apart. And Let's not give up hope just yet. Let's believe something new can be formed out of the ashes of the world that's falling to pieces. Yeah, and you know, I'm a student of history, and that one of the things that I look for is patterns in history. And often, what I've seen, and we saw this, in, we saw this at the end of the Second World War, was that you know that was obviously a period of great um, violence and death and suffering and. Um, for so many people, and so and the, almost the whole world was was affected. Um, but out of the ashes of that, where there were there were things that were new things that were created. Um, I mean, in our country, you know, we had the welfare state, we had the national health service, which is still going, um, which means that we get free healthcare. Um, that is undoubtedly a good thing. Um, and Germany was reborn as a as a very healthy, prosperous nation. Um, and I, I've I've noticed in Germany actually that that having to face up to the horrors of the things that their nation did was actually a um, a transformative moment for them culturally, um, and allowed them to move on from the past. Um, yeah. In, in comparison, um, you know, our two our two nations, um, Britain and America, um, did the opposite. Didn't learn anything. weren't Didn't have to confront anything that we'd done in the past. 
or any anything any harm that we had done you know like in my in my in our country's case my country's case colonialism and and the british empire and, and all of that kind of thing um and um and in your and obviously your country's got its own history of um oppression and slavery and, and things like that as well so um but we didn't face up to that and because we didn't face up to that uh and continue to refuse to face up to it we ended up causing ourselves harm and we've ended up in this situation that we're in um but i guess my point is that when when things get really really bad it's never the end it, there is always a there was always a new beginning after sure um and that's what that's what's kept me going um because we haven't had any political change here for 12 years. We have had, we've had a right-wing government for, for 12 years. Um, we've caused incredible damage. Um, and we need a change. Um, and, uh, but I, you know, I keep on, I, I did, I did lose hope politically at one point. I did. Um, I've got it back again recently. Um, but, because it's easy to lose hope when things get really, really difficult, but we have to hold on to hope um, because things can get better. Um, we just have to keep keep going. Uh, and I think actually, once people feel start to feel that hope on a more widespread basis, then you start to then things really start to move. Um, things start to shift, and people start to rebuild their lives and find new structures and that kind of gained the momentum of it by, of itself. Um, once hope becomes contagious, it can be transformational. I, I remember, like, I mean, I remember Barack Obama and, you know, um, when he, you know, in 2008, the, the momentum of that whole year, there was a, such a, a, such a feeling of hope in America. And, and that, 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 that got transferred over here. We, we, we kind of got the tailwind of that. We, I, I felt that. Um, and obviously it didn't turn out as we wanted, but the point I'm trying to make is that that, that hope was contagious and it started to, it started to lift the whole country and things started to change. So, um, yeah, you're right. I think you're right. Totally. It's always, it's good to hear that more and more people are finding the hope in the midst of this moment because cynicism and hopelessness makes sense. Uh, there's no faulting anybody for that. But um, cynicism and hopelessness don't provide the fuel that we really need to begin doing new things. And so I'm glad to hear you found the hope that I'm beginning to find as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think we, I think we need hope. Uh, we need, we, we always need hope. Um, and there's that there's a phrase that hope, that hope dies last. I don't know who said it. Hope dies last, and I think that's true. Um, and I don't think hope has died at all. Uh, I think it's quietly growing <laughs> um, underneath the surface. And like, because I mean, authentic hope is not, oh, everything's going to be okay, forget everything bad in the world, it's all happy, great. Hope, real hope is birthed in the midst of suffering and trauma, and like, you know, that even in the midst of this, um, something better can come. Um, that's what real hope is. Um, yeah. And yeah, you're right. We all need it. And I'm glad that you, you know, that you are advocating for hope. <laughs> we need, we need books like, like this one to give us hope. Um, 
and um, I'm grateful that you've uh, shared this shared this book with us. Well, thank you so much, and yeah, I'm glad glad it's out in the world. And um, for anybody who might pick it up, I'm very interested in people's thoughts um, as as we're all wrestling with these big questions. So, um, yeah, I'm been grateful to see the feedback so far, and if any of your listeners might engage with the book i would love uh, for them to let me know what they think any ideas questions comments concerns all of the above because that's how we build a generative path forward that's right it's about having healthy conversations um, like we've had today i think today's been a really great conversation i feel more hopeful because of it um, every time we have a conversation james i walk away feeling more hopeful so it's good oh, that's right thank you that's good to hear um that's great to hear um, um and for everyone the book um it's called um dry bones and holy wars and it's available now um on amazon and where we get books and i highly recommend it um and as well as brandon's other books as well um he's a very inspiring guy go check out his tiktok channel as well what what's that uh what's your tiktok handle it is at reverend brent or R-E-V, Brandon Robertson. I would highly recommend that. Um, it's It's gone. It, it blew up, didn't it? Um, you know, TikTok. Um, and you got on the cover of, uh, what was it, Rolling Stone? Was it? Well, not cover, but you want to get interviewed by Rolling Stone anyway. Yeah, um, a couple of years ago now. But yeah, I've slowed down in this season uh, after the COVID uh, social media addiction. I pulled back a little bit, but... I still post on there and uh, imagine in 2023, I'll get more, more active once again, but yeah, TikTok's a great place. If you want to continue these conversations, I'm talking about this stuff all the time over there. Fantastic. Fantastic. I recommend following Brandon on all his, all his channels. He's on all the social socials. So yeah, definitely check his work out. And um, thank you for coming on the show, Brandon. Um, it's really great to have you. It's always great to have you and I'm sure we'll have you back again. Well, thanks for having me. I always appreciate a change. Yeah, it's great to talk to you. Take care, everyone.